You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 408 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, the big Confederate attack on the morning of September 20th, 1863, the third day of the Battle of Chickamauga, had finally gotten underway. Breckinridge's division had swept around the Union left and then turned to the south, threatening the rear of the Yankee position at Kelly Field. Breckinridge's rebels had seemed to be on the verge of a significant success, but it was an illusion because there were no reserves at hand to exploit their gains. And so, as federal resistance stiffened, the lack of even a single reserve regiment to commit to the fight on the Confederate side meant that when the Yankees counterattacked, Breckinridge's troops had to pull back from the northern end of Kelly Field. While Breckinridge's men were sweeping around the federal flank and threatening the rear of the Kelly Field position, the other half of D.H. Hill's corps, Patrick Claiborne's division, was attempting to come to grips with the enemy farther south. While everything wasn't exactly peaches and cream for Breckinridge's division, Claiborne's three brigades would have an even rockier experience. To Breckinridge's left, Claiborne's three brigades surged forward against the outside of the Federals' Kelly Field perimeter. Lucius Polk's brigade held Claiborne's right with orders to maintain contact with Helm's Orphan Brigade, which was on Breckinridge's left. S.A.M. Wood's brigade of Alabamans and Mississippians was in the center of Claiborne's divisional line, while James Deschler's brigade of Arkansans and Texans was on the left. Advancing in a single long line, Claiborne's division moved forward just to the left, or south of Helm's Orphan Brigade. But the advance of the Orphan Brigade, and in fact of Breckinridge's entire division, carried it to the north, or to the right, which caused Polk's brigade in Claiborne's line to drift in that direction also, as it tried to maintain contact with the orphans. As you guys so recall, Helm's Orphan Brigade was severely punished when it hit the Union line at Kelly Field, where the Yankees had thrown up some rough field works. And just a short distance away, Lucius Polk's Tennesseans and Arkansans also came under heavy fire from the enemy, 
who were hunkered down behind the fence rails and logs they'd piled up. It was as if the brigade had hit an immovable object, and, unable to make any headway, Polk's advance quickly ground to a halt. Lashed by the unrelenting enemy fire, and with men falling on every side, Lucius Polk pulled his regiments back to try to gain some breathing space. One Arkansan in the ranks later said that when he took cover behind a tree stump as his company fell back, the Yankees, quote, put possibly 50 pounds of lead into my stump in one and a half minutes. When he ordered his division forward, Patrick Claiborne was with Lucius Polk's brigade. When Polk's regiment stepped off, moving west, Claiborne rode to the left to check on S.A.M. Wood's brigade. Claiborne hadn't been satisfied with Wood's performance the previous evening during the division's night attack, but he was hopeful that Wood, today, would have his brigade under firm control as it advanced. However, when Claiborne reached Wood, he found that the brigade wasn't yet moving forward. When Claiborne asked why Wood's command wasn't advancing, Wood replied that he had lost contact with Polk on his right... As y'all will recall, Polk's regiments were drifting off to the right or north as they tried to stay in contact with the Orphan Brigade. Exactly. Well, in any case, Wood also told Claiborne that not only had he lost touch with Polk on his right, but that Deschler's brigade on his left hadn't started forward because its advance was blocked by fellow Confederates from Stewart's division. That was a result of something we talked about in the last episode, that is, James Longstreet ordering Stewart's troops to slide to the north. However, as we said last time, the unintended consequence of Stewart's slide to the north was that his line of battle was now in front of Deschler's brigade, blocking its advance. In other words, some of the Confederates in the Army's left wing were now blocking the advance of some of Claiborne's troops in the Army's right wing. At any rate, Wood's response to Claiborne's question was perfectly reasonable, telling Claiborne that he hadn't started his advance because he'd lost contact with Lucius Polk on his right, and to his left, Deschler wasn't going forward because he was blocked by Stewart's troops. So, if Wood advanced, he'd be doing so with both his flanks exposed. Nevertheless, Claiborne told Wood he must start forward, and promised Wood that he'd personally make sure Deschler advanced too. When Wood dutifully got his regiment started forward, Claiborne rode off to the left to find James Deschler and get Deschler's brigade moving. However, upon reaching Deschler, Claiborne realized that Stewart's troops, in front of Deschler's position, were indeed blocking Deschler's regiments, and there was no way for Deschler's line to go forward without becoming hopelessly disordered as they passed through Stewart's position. Deschler couldn't go forward, so Claiborne, improvising on the fly, told him to instead shift his brigade to the north. Claiborne's intention was that by shifting Deschler to the right, his men could not only cover the growing gap between Polk's brigade and Wood's brigade, but Deschler could also find some space that would allow his brigade to get into the fight 
as it moved forward and hit the Yankees at Kelly Field. That may have been what Claiborne intended, and he was certainly doing all that he could to salvage a difficult situation. But by this time, with Lucius Polk's advance stalled, with Wood moving forward unsupported, and with Deschler forced to shift to a new position, by this time, despite Patrick Claiborne's best intentions, the advance of his division was already running hopelessly off the rails. Despite Patrick Claiborne's best attempts to get the attack of his three brigades back on track, Lucius Polk, Wood, and Deschler wound up going forward piecemeal and unsupported. In desperate, disjointed attacks, Claiborne's three brigades surged forward against the Federal's Kelly Field position. All along the line, from north to south, came the rattling crashes of musket volleys and the chest-tightening concussions of the artillery. Dense white clouds of powder smoke drifted through the trees and across Kelly Field. Like waves surging against the shore, Claiborne's three brigades dashed themselves to pieces against the immovable rock of the Federals' field fortifications. All along the line, the Yankees had only to load and fire, load and fire, as their hastily constructed log and fence rail breastworks proved their value making for obscenely lopsided casualty figures. On the ground in front of the Federal position, Claiborne's three brigades left just over 1,300 of the almost 4,700 men they carried into the battle on this day. By contrast, Hazen's brigade of Federals, one of several units that turned back Claiborne's attack, lost a grand total of 13 men. While Claiborne's division was dashing itself to pieces against the front of the Federal's Kelly Field position, the Confederates of Breckinridge's division were pulling back from their temporary success against the flank and rear of that same position. It would be hours before the disorganized remnants of Breckinridge's command could be put back together and ready to enter the battle again. John C. Breckinridge believed that if Confederate reserves had been in position to support his division's attack, his temporary success could have been turned into a significant victory. And certainly, Braxton Bragg had given right-wing commander Leonidas Polk the troops to exploit any such opportunity, as Walker's Corps and Cheatham's division sat out the first round of the fighting there on the northern end of the battlefield. However, Polk had simply failed to make use of those reserves, and therefore Breckinridge's troops had little chance to gain more than their temporary success. In the end, in a perfect example of too little too late, some of Walker's corps did go into action, with one brigade striking the flank of the Union position before being driven off in disorder, and another brigade uselessly attacking the same field works that had defeated Claiborne's troops. Taken as a whole, the performance of the Confederate right wing this morning had been awful. As always, the troops had fought ferociously, but their valor was wasted. 
Not to put too fine a point on it, but Leonidas Polk's failure as wing commander was one of the most appalling exhibitions of command incompetence of the entire Civil War. The failure of the Confederate right wing was significant, since Bragg's only hope of a truly decisive victory over the Yankees lay in cutting off the enemy army from Chattanooga. That could be done only at the northern end of the battlefield. Bragg couldn't hope for decisive results unless he could succeed in rolling up the Union left, thus denying the Yankees access to Chattanooga by way of both the Lafayette Road and Dry Valley Road. If the Confederates failed to roll up the Federal left and deny the Yankees' use of the Lafayette Road and Dry Valley Road, then no matter what else they managed to do, the enemy army would almost certainly succeed in withdrawing to Chattanooga, more or less intact. On the morning of September 20th, Confederate hopes of victory, that is, Bragg's hopes of rolling up the Union left, rested on the shoulders of Leonidas Polk. And, as he had on several occasions during the war, and at least once within the past month, Polk failed. Of course, Bragg could be faulted for giving so important an assignment to Leonidas Polk, but, as we've already pointed out, under the circumstances, if Bragg was determined to split the army into two wings, then he had little choice but to give one wing to Polk, and the arrangement and positioning of the various units dictated that Polk would get the right wing. Confederate President Jefferson Davis had made it plain to Braxton Bragg over a year before that he expected Bragg to work with Polk. That, in the Bishop General's rank, meant inevitably that Leonidas Polk would frequently be in positions of great responsibility, and because of his lack of military abilities, he frequently would fail. Jefferson Davis's imprudent decision to remain loyal to his West Point friend and sustain Leonidas Polk in high command may never have cost the Confederacy more dearly than on this third day of the Battle of Chickamauga, when Polk was clearly the wrong man in the wrong spot when the key to victory lay in the success of the rebel army's right wing. By noon on the 20th, Polk's wing had ceased to make any serious attacks upon the federal position in and around Kelly Field. And with that, with Polk having failed in the task of rolling up the Union left, the chance for a truly decisive victory slipped through Braxton Bragg's fingers. Nevertheless, both sides would still have to play it out, would still have to fight it out on this last day of the battle even though all that remained to be seen was how much damage the Confederates could inflict on the Yankee army and at what cost to the rebels themselves. That morning for the Federal Army, even though George Thomas had successfully maintained his position in and around Kelly Field, there had still been moments of high drama when Thomas's command seemed to be on the edge of disaster. However, at several key moments in the fighting, the arrival of Federal reinforcements at the right place and at the right time provided the margin of victory for the Yankees there on the northern part of the battlefield. 
Even after D.H. Hill's four-hour delay in kicking off the Confederate attack, it had nevertheless still been a near-run thing when Breckinridge's division of rebels seemed to be on the verge of success. But the lack of support for Breckinridge on the rebel side and, on the federal side, the timely arrival of reinforcements and Thomas's own quick response to the crisis provided the margin of victory for the Yankees on this part of the battlefield. But their success on this part of the battlefield, that is, on the Union left, would ultimately cost the Federals dearly down on their right, because while maintaining his position in and around Kelly Field was a commendable performance by George Thomas and the men under his command, it was no military miracle, since Army of the Cumberland commander William Rosecrans had continuously fed Thomas more troops troops that old Rosie had pulled from other parts of his line. Thomas's success on the northern part of the battlefield was due to his own undoubted skill and steadiness, to the toughness and fighting qualities of the federal troops under his command, and to the ineptness of Leonidas Leonidas Polk on the Confederate side. But the Yankees' success in and around Kelly Field that morning was also due to Rosecrans' determination to hold that ground, come what may. Old Rosie's resolve to strengthen George Thomas at all costs had led him to feed units to Thomas until, by the repulse of the last rebel attack on the Kelly Field position, George Thomas had under his command some 16 brigades. The Confederates had thrown only 14 brigades into their attack, So Thomas's success was not too surprising. Nor had Rosecrans dispatched all those reinforcements unprompted, because since two o'clock that morning, Thomas had sent over a dozen separate appeals to Army headquarters for more troops. And true to his promise to sustain Thomas, Rosecrans had responded faithfully to those requests. And before the fighting in and around Kelly Field died down around noon, he had even dispatched another four brigades to the northern part of the battlefield. Although those brigades hadn't yet reported to Thomas by the time the fighting died down in the Kelly Field sector, nevertheless by noon the only federal troops not assigned to George Thomas were five brigades of McCook's Corps plus Wilder's Lightning Brigade. The long and the short of it was that all of this shifting and moving of units had made Thomas's sector of the battlefield rock solid, but shortly before noon, it also led to a serious mistake that left the right flank of the Federal line fatally vulnerable. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Many people know the familiar, oft-told story of the next act in our drama, that all of the shifting of units on the federal side, combined with mistaken orders from Army headquarters and the spiteful obedience of those orders by a disgruntled subordinate, resulted in a fatal gap opening up in the Union line at exactly the spot where a powerful attack was about to be delivered by Longstreet's wing of the Confederate Army. That's the familiar, oft-told story, and most of it is even true. That morning, the movement of troops north to reinforce George Thomas created an inevitable amount of friction and confusion as other units were shifted to fill holes created by departing troops. As part of the movement of more troops to the northern part of the battlefield, Thomas himself issued urgent orders to Brannon, whom he apparently believed was in reserve. But Brannon wasn't in reserve. His division was in the front line. So if Brannon obeyed Thomas's orders to immediately join the fight at Kelly Field, it would open a hole in the front line. A hole between Reynolds' division to Brannon's left and Wood's division to Brannon's right. So, at first, Brannon decided to stay where he was, since, obviously, marching away and leaving a hole in the front line might have dire consequences. Brannon rode over to consult with Reynolds. Even though Reynolds' right flank would be vulnerable if Brannon departed, he nevertheless told Brannon he thought he'd be all right, and that if George Thomas needed Brannon, then it must be urgent. So Reynolds suggested Brannon pull his troops out of line and march to Thomas's aid. As Brannon returned to his division to prepare it to move, Reynolds thought it might be best if Captain Sanford Kellogg, one of Thomas's staff officers, in fact the staff officer who had delivered Thomas's orders to Brannon, but Reynolds thought it might be best if Captain Kellogg now rode to Army headquarters with a message from Reynolds saying that his right flank would be up in the air when Brannon departed and that he, Reynolds, could use any help that might be available. Captain Kellogg spurred his horse southwest in search of Rosecrans. He found Army headquarters on the northern end of a ridge skirting the western edge of Dyer Field. You see, after finishing riding his lines that morning, Old Rosie had ordered his headquarters moved from the Widow Glen's cabin to this spot, where the open ridge top provided an excellent view of the Dyer farm fields. Although it couldn't be seen from Rose Cran's position because of intervening woods, the Federal battle line stretched north and south in the forest just 1,100 yards to the east. 
Upon reaching Rosecrans headquarters after a fast gallop across the broad, dire field, Captain Kellogg breathlessly reported that Thomas was heavily engaged, that Brandon's division had been ordered to his assistance, and that Reynolds' right flank would be exposed when Brandon marched off. Because Rosecrans' chief of staff, Brigadier General James Garfield, was busy at that moment writing another order, Old Rosie turned to his senior aide-de-camp, Major Frank Bond. Bond wasn't a career soldier, but had been with Rosecrans a long time and was trusted completely by the Federal Army commander. As Rosecrans dictated, Bond wrote the following note to Brigadier General Thomas Wood. Quote, The general commanding directs that you close up on Reynolds as fast as possible and support him. The order was timed... 10.45 a.m. and was marked to be delivered at the gallop. Twenty-first Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden was at Army Headquarters while all of this was transpiring, and the order for Wood was given to Crittenden's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Lynn Starling, for delivery. Starling raced away and quickly reached Wood's position. The story later told by Rosecrans defenders, and by many historians, was that upon receipt of these orders, Thomas Wood, who was supposedly in a foul mood because Rosecrans had given him a public tongue-lashing earlier in the day, now saw an opportunity to stick it to old Rosie. So Wood wasted no time in yanking his three brigades out of line and marching them to the rear, leaving a gaping hole in the Union line, which the rebels promptly rolled right through. That story was perpetuated for many years, and even one modern historian speaks of Wood's, quote, unfortunate state of mind, end quote, and paints a picture of a vindictive Wood obeying the order, even though, quote, it made no sense and appeared disastrous. However, the reality is that while Wood had received an undeserved public rebuke from Rosecrans earlier in the day, that incident appears to have had no bearing upon Wood's actions here. What really happened is that when Starling galloped up, Wood was in the middle of a conversation with 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook. Upon reading the order, Wood showed it to McCook. Wood expressed his hesitation to immediately execute the order and pull his troops out of the line. Although his sector was quiet at the moment, his skirmishers had been engaged with the rebels, and he was aware that the enemy, perhaps in significant numbers, was up to something in the woods over across the Lafayette Road. Wood, of course, had no way of knowing that, at that moment, 10,000 Confederates in Longstreet's wing were preparing to roll forward at that exact spot. But still, Wood was aware that quickly pulling out of the line, as the order required, would give the rebels the opportunity to advance across the Lafayette Road in strength. Significantly, since the order made no mention of Brannon pulling out and going to Thomas's aid, Wood believed that Brannon's division was still in place between him and Reynolds. In the military terminology of the day, to quote-unquote close up on meant moving up beside another unit, while quote-unquote 
support meant moving behind a unit. So not only was Rosecrans' order poorly worded, essentially telling Wood to do two different things, but with Brannon's division in place, there was no way for Wood to slide to his left and close up on Reynolds. But what Wood could do was pull his brigades out of line, march around behind Brannon, and support Reynolds from the rear. Again, keep in mind, Wood didn't know Brannon was moving to George Thomas's aid. At any rate, because he was worried the Confederates opposite him were up to something, and because of the confused nature of these instructions, Wood suggested to McCook that he delay execution of the orders until the situation could be clarified. However, McCook believed the orders should be obeyed immediately. He pointed out that neither he nor Wood could see the entire picture, as could Rosecrans as army commander. And for old Rosie to issue such an order, there must be extraordinary circumstances at play and therefore no time to lose. So McCook believed Wood must immediately obey the order. Besides, McCook said he would have he would move troops from Jefferson C. Davis's division to fill the gap left by Wood's departure. Well, McCook was persuasive, and as the ranking officer and commander of this sector of the battlefield, his suggestion that Wood ought to immediately obey the order from Army headquarters, well, that suggestion could hardly be ignored. As Wood got busy preparing his division to quickly pull out of line and march to support Reynolds, McCook rode off to see if he could actually make good on his promise to fill the space Wood was in the process of leaving. At any rate, we wanted to spend some time walking through that entire sequence because it's really a very different story than the one that became fixed in the popular imagination which painted a picture of a spiteful Wood receiving the order and quickly pulling his troops out of the front line in some twisted attempt to get back at Rosecrans for unfairly rebuking him earlier in the day. As it turned out, as the clock ticked past 11 a.m., the entire right side of the Federal Army was in motion. Wood's division departed so quickly that some of its pickets were left behind. Meanwhile, McCook reached Jefferson C. Davis and ordered him to move one of his brigades to cover the ground Wood was vacating. How McCook thought one understrength brigade could cover the ground previously held by Wood's entire division is a bit of a mystery. But, in any case, those weren't the only federal troops in motion. Because at the same time, Phil Sheridan was moving two brigades northward from the Widow Glen cabin along the Dry Valley Road. Such was the pull of George Thomas's never-ending calls for assistance that Rosecrans felt compelled to respond with almost everything the 20th and 21st Corps had remaining. And so, as Longstreet's wing of the Confederate Army started to roll forward and begin its attack on the Federal right, at that moment, not only was there a gaping hole where Wood's division had been positioned, but except for Wilder's Lightning Brigade and Carlin's Brigade of Davis's division, the entire right side of the Army of the Cumberland was in motion. The timing couldn't have been worse for the Federals or better for the Confederates, 
as the circumstances prepared the way for the most dramatic moment of the entire battle. By pure blind luck, the stage was thus set for Longstreet's attack to hit at the very time almost the entire right side of the Union army was in motion and to strike at the very place the Yankees had created a weak spot. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Battle Cry of Freedom, The Civil War Era by James McPherson. Yeah, we've kind of run out of Chickamauga book recommendations, so for the balance of this story arc, we thought we'd make the book recommendations a mix of some oldies but goodies and some newer releases. Anyway, we still get asked on a fairly regular basis what Civil War book we'd recommend if we had to narrow it down to just one, and our answer has always been, and probably always will be, James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. It's been a few weeks since the last episode, so we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support of the podcast. So a big thanks to Nicholas R., Russ S., Steve B., John S., Jeffrey L., and Robert S., Tom B., Doug T., Martin K., Richard F., Brian, and Daniel R., Matt S., Bill E., S-P-O-B, Edward S., Susan H., and John D. And thanks to Chad R., Bruce B., David R., and Tim I. for their recent donations. Thanks for those donations, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.